Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks, a direct care accelerator helping physicians across the country start and manage their DPC clinics. This episode can be considered a current event discussion as telehealth or telemedicine continues to be a red hot topic. There's no better person to talk to about this than the CEO and founder of Sesame. Sesame provides direct-to-patient healthcare that puts power back in the hands of patients and providers so that everyone can have access to quality care at affordable prices. So joining me today is David Goldhill, founder and CEO of Sesame. Innovation doesn't come from the customer. It comes from the provider, the seller, the supplier of a good or service who says, here's a clever way to better serve customers and therefore get more customers, whether it's price or packaging or time of day. And none of those things are possible in healthcare. And all telehealth is in its incredibly slow, you know, 20 year adoption is an illustration of how if you can't figure out how to fit a phone call into therapy, then what's the hope for genuine innovation? So David, let's start off setting the stage. Is it telehealth or is it telemedicine? Well, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a funny question. I'm not sure why it's tele-anything. Um, you know, I think the reality that talking to your physician over the phone, over video, through text, is somehow a different thing than getting healthcare is really a result of our third-party payment system, not anything to do with healthcare. Nobody refers to the fact that you call your lawyer on the phone, you know, tell a law, right? It's just part of your relationship with your lawyer and your accountant and almost anybody else that you use for a service. What's happened in healthcare, and it's really what Sesame is about, is the category of telehealth exists as a separate thing because the issue hasn't been, gee, can we get doctors to use the phone or video or text? Is it technologically possible? Grandparents have been doing that with grandkids for almost uh, two decades now. The issue was, can we get a third-party payer to pay for it? And everything about the way telehealth has been established, and it tells you a lot about healthcare in general, has been, how do we get someone else to pay for it? There's nothing about the technology that's particularly complicated. I, I love the analogy that, you know, grandparents have been figuring this out for a very long time because that's always a subset of people that say, well, we can't figure that out. Or what about these patients? How are they going to be able to text me? And you bring up great points. You know, why don't we call it tele-law or tele-accounting or whatever it is? But again, it ties back to the reimbursement. And until recently, goodness, CMS didn't even reimburse physicians uh, or I hate the word reimburse, but pay physicians for seeing Medicare patients uh, other than face-to-face. So kind of fast forwarding to why this is a current event right now, let's use virtual care. Does that work instead of telehealth or telemed? That's fine. All right. So why is virtual care such a popular subject right now in the midst of this COVID pandemic? Well, the simple reason is that almost all physical medical offices and most cities and, and, in fact, most areas of the country uh, were closed for some period of time during the lockdown. Um, and then added to that, of course, because of the fear of the uh, contagion of COVID-19, many patients were afraid to go to even those offices that were open. 
Um, and so there's been quite a bit of improvis- improvisational acceleration around telehealth. I don't find the word offensive. I just find it funny. Yeah. Uh, so what we've seen, obviously, is CMS changing its rules, not just around what they're willing to pay for, but issues around HIPAA and uh, cross-state uh, delivery. Many states have also changed the rules around, you know, what doctors can, um, uh, can operate through uh, uh, telehealth in their state. Uh, patients have been much, much more willing to find healthcare online because that was the only place to find it. Uh, and insurers have also responded as well. Some have included broader categories of telehealth uh, in uh, care that is covered or deductible free or with a small copayment or even or part of your deductible. They've established definitions in a way they hadn't before. Um, so I, that's why it's a topic of the moment because we really had no choice and that accelerated the sector. It's innovation by necessity. Uh, but you did mention, and I, I was laughing here, that this isn't really some big technological leap forward. Why is medical care and the medical care industry, why are they so far behind? I mean, you've kind of alluded to it, kind of hinted at it uh, with the way that the payment systems are set up. But I mean, you've got to look at this and say, how in the heck is a video call this massive innovation here in the year 2020? Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And, um, but even beyond that, it's a real illustration of how innovation happens or really doesn't happen in healthcare, which is you can't, as a typical physician, say, I've got a great new idea for packaging care. You know, there's an issue with diabetes amongst my patients. I can see a way of a proactive you know, pre-diabetes package that I offer to patients that really focuses on those who are vulnerable, avoiding the the onset of diabetes. And I've got a class. You can't do that in healthcare. Mm -hmm. No physician can do that because no one's going to pay for it, right? Now, the patient might pay for it directly. And in fact, those packages do exist in markets where patients pay directly. But CMS hasn't told you you can do that with Medicare patients. Private insurers haven't told you you can sell that to their patients. So literally the normal innovation, and this is something that when you get in healthcare policy circles, they don't seem to understand. Innovation doesn't come from the customer. It comes from the provider, the seller, the, the uh, supplier of a good or service who says, here's a clever way to better serve customers and therefore get more customers, whether it's price or packaging or time of day. And none of those things are possible in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And all telehealth is in its incredibly slow, you know, 20 year adoption is an illustration of how if you can't figure out how to fit a phone call into therapy, then what's the hope for genuine innovation? Right, right. It kind of reminds me of the great Henry Ford saying that if I asked customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, but that's, but that's right. But you know, when a lot of health policy guys talk about consumer directed care, they don't know this, but they mean the opposite of what it means in the rest of the economy. So in the rest of the economy, consumers don't have to work hard. There are tens of billions of dollars, close to hundreds of billions, $100 billion, spent every year on sellers trying to convince consumers to buy their thing. Here's how I make it easy for you. Here's how I make it attractive for you. Here's how I make this package work for you. Mm-hmm. Consumer-directed care in the rest of the economy is about the consumer doing less work because we encourage innovation among sellers of services to attract consumers. In healthcare, when someone talks about a consumer-directed healthcare, what they're saying is consumers can go online and compare one doctor to another and figure more work. 
Consumers don't like to do work. And in healthy consumer-oriented uh, businesses, they don't need to do that much work. Yeah, that's a great point and, and something that not a lot of people focus on. Um, and I guess that's why in a lot of healthcare circles, they say, look, the average healthcare consumer is very lazy. But then you look at the amount of work that, and research that they have to do. And if anybody's ever called up to a hospital and said, how much is this service? How much is this price? They can't even get a, a straight answer. So you have a disillusioned consumer at that standpoint, and everybody just accepts it as a status quo. Well, I, I mean, to, to, Chris, to your point, uh, people say things in healthcare that they never bother to qualify by the rest of the world that they live in. I, I, it's, double speak. it's like Orwellian uh, doublespeak. Well, but, but you know, I, I often find myself saying to a healthcare economist, have you ever been to a store? Like it's almost everything when you talk about healthcare, it's the opposite of what you experience or anything else. Consumers in healthcare have to work so hard to figure out who they can buy from, what the price they pay, what the nature of the service they're getting in, what they're committing to financially. And then, God forbid, there's actually something medically wrong with them. How to navigate this incredibly complex system of diagnostics and specialists and procedures which are totally uncoordinated from the patient's perspective. And it is, um, you know, from a consumer service point of view, the, the, the healthcare industry is a, is a desert. And when I hear experts in the space say, boy, consumers are too lazy to work hard. It's a, I'll give you another example. I started my business career as a finance person. I was a, uh, and I was a chief financial officer, sort of my first executive job of a company. And I'm somebody who is obsessed with healthcare. It's one of my interests. I cannot read an explanation of benefits. I don't understand them. And so you're talking about a guy who's written books on insurance and is a CFO and can't read this document. That's a problem. Yeah. Again, going back to making things easier to understand and you know, that is, it's such a great point. You go out and try to buy anything else and there's a plethora of information out there and it's so easy to buy it. And that's one of the hallmarks of just marketing in general is you try to make something as easy as possible for somebody to buy. But then you look at this mentality that a, in order to purchase medical care, you have to have health insurance. And so at Freedom HealthWorks, we, we try to drive that wedge across that equal sign that says, no, health insurance does not equal medical care. And I like the term medical care rather than healthcare because it separates everything completely and nicely. But a typical consumer trying to find medical care, you're pretty much on your own. If you have to go through your health insurance, you get a list of a name, a list of people, and then you start dialing through the list. And I'm like, this is, this is insane. This is yeah. absolutely crazy. So, you know, going back to the, the kind of current pandemic and the focus on the telehealth industry. I talk to a lot of doctors who think, and, and patients too, that think telemedicine is this fix-all, cure-all within healthcare. What are your thoughts on that particular subject? Yeah, I mean, I, look, healthcare is, uh, it's got 315 million customers and a million doctors. And if you figured out the number of procedures and services offered, you're looking at tens, probably hundreds of thousands. One of the greatest mistakes we make in thinking about healthcare is assuming there is some silver bullet solution to making those markets work, right? There's some ingenious way of financial engineering. There's some fantastic insurance policy. There's a, and it's a mistake we've been making for a long time. So at least it's 
a new one. But there is no answer to anything. This is an extremely complex range of human needs and an extremely complex and ever-evolving capabilities to serve them. Okay, that's a big statement. How does telehealth fit into that? Like anything else, it's convenient for the consumer and often convenient for the provider. It's a terrific way to cover a lot of conditions to which the um, recommended therapeutic advice is going to be. Let's keep an eye on that. Why don't you get some rest? Uh, There's a relatively straightforward script that usually handles this. Um, I think you're okay. All those sort of, you know, caring, healing words that make us, all right, someone who knows has looked at this. I feel better already. I know this isn't some terrible disease. This is a normal thing that happens. Most most primary or at least most urgent items resolve that way. Most of them do, not all of them, obviously. This is a pretty convenient, easy, simple, straightforward, works a very large percentage of time way of handling that, that has this very unusual characteristic of being better in most cases for the clinician and better in most cases for the patient. Patient doesn't have to find parking. Patient doesn't have to be around genuinely sick patients. Clinician can fit this into a part of their schedule where, where it works. That's great. It's not the answer. It's, it's a helpful thing. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that I sort of laughed about the idea of there being telehealth is it's just medical care. It's just medical care conducted over the phone or by video or by text. We're going to invent new forms of communication. And I don't know that we want to have to come up with new prefixes every time we come up with a different way for a doctor to talk to a patient. And so, but it's useful, it's valuable. And we've seen that. Look, I, I have my own example. My, um, my daughter uh, injured her wrist on a Saturday night at 11. And it was right in the middle of the pandemic. We're in New York. Absolutely everything was closed. I had a hard time even getting to emergency rooms unless uh, you had something truly, truly sure, uh, sure. Uh, life-threatening. And I called my pediatrician, really her pediatrician, and she said, let's connect by video. I'm pretty sure this is nursemaid's elbow, not a wrist, and I can show you how to fix it. 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, that's a terrific value. That is great. Yeah, I think the audience might have heard me tell this story before, but, but similar occurrence, my, uh, my wife was using one of those mandolins, which I tell that to everybody and they're like, Ooh, they just cringe. See, yeah, See? same yeah. reaction, right? I've, I've done it. We've all, anyone who cooks knows the minute you said that we knew exactly what happened. Yep. Yep. <laughs> took a, took a nickel sized chunk out of her, um, out of her palm by her thumb. And, and I've grown up in, in, uh, around physicians and healthcare, you know, my entire life. And she asked me, she's like, holy, do I, do I need to go to the ER? And I'm like, I don't think we can do anything, but take a picture of it, send it to your doctor. She has a direct primary care doctor. And, you know, sure enough, five, 10 minutes later, um, just got pressure on it. And the doctor was like, oh, that looks like it hurts, but there's nothing you can do about it. Don't go to the ER. Don't go to urgent care. Clean gauze, cold water. You're going to be okay. And it's like, you know, those little anecdotes, part of the reason why we do this podcast, but those little anecdotes, I mean, there's real dollar savings within that. And so that goes back to kind of what we were saying about the customer service being a higher level of customer service being injected into medical care through telehealth, through the direct care world, because now the cost of losing a patient is so much higher and so much easier for people to find different ways of caring. And then, like you said, when a physician actually values your time and you're able to text your doctor or call your doctor and get an answer and you're not spending an afternoon in the waiting room, 
those are serious opportunity costs that people should be thinking about when they're looking for medical care, right? It's so enormous. And both you and I have sort of a, a passion for the power of markets and competition. You know, what's interesting about what, what you're talking about, what I was talking about with my pediatrician example, you with your wife's mandolin example, is that it is almost inconceivable in a healthcare system that had more market signals and more competition that this would be a conversation we're having in 2020. Isn't it right? wild? Yeah, this would be a conversation we would have had in 19... 19- I mean, we would have been using telephones for all this stuff. I mean, remember before the insurance, a third-party model dominated how healthcare was structured, priced, and delivered, doctors made house calls. Doctors didn't make house calls because they were professionally required to. It's because their business model suggests it. Now, that business model probably doesn't work anymore. Um, But regardless, what didn't happen in telehealth is that the clear and obvious superiority of it as a supplement to healthcare drove it to the marketplace. What happened in telehealth is we had a pandemic that for the first time in history, we shut down the economy, including most healthcare, and we had no choice. And again, we could talk about telehealth as, isn't this great? It's happening. I think it is a good and positive development. But as somebody who cares about healthcare, I think the more powerful thing we're seeing is just how difficult consumer-friendly, patient-friendly, even doctor-friendly innovation is in a third-party payment-dominated health economy. I totally agree. And there's just no incentive for those kind of masters of this industry to change. Uh, You mentioned something as far as telehealth uh, being a supplement for in-person care. And I totally agree with that. Um, I get questions a lot, but people treat telemed or telehealth as it's a replacement for in-person care. And I even talk to doctors who say, I only want to do telemedicine only. What's your message to people with that kind of mindset? You know, I, look, I, I, the, the, the right healthcare economy has an enormous amount of choice and variety. If there are physicians who wanna, only want to do telemed, great. There are patients who only want to do telemed and they're fortunate enough to have conditions that can be resolved through telemed, great. I, I'm, I'm a real believer um, that the, the more different types of way you have of providing services, the more likely you are to find matches for the 315, 320 million American consumers all of whom need healthcare. The idea that there's only one way to treat them, that there's only one model that's great, uh, makes no sense to me. Um, and, it, you know, in almost every well-functioning industry, there is a a la carte option, there is a packaging option, and there's a lot of packaging options that are subscription options because different things work for different needs for different people. And so any variation that's positive for the consumer and positive for the provider is positive for the system in my mind. So no single top-down approach coming from, oh, I don't know, Washington, D.C. Uh, will completely satisfy everybody's needs, everybody's options, everybody's choices. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's really a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of healthcare. And, um, you know, I think one of the great reasons that healthcare is so expensive everywhere on earth, not just in the U.S., and is an issue ever. And, and you know, in the U.S., we have something of a very superficial understanding of how our healthcare system compares to healthcare systems around the world. But the reality is healthcare is a problem everywhere because of cost pressure, mm-hmm. um, quality issues in some systems, uh, availability and access issues in others, right? Access isn't just a matter of income. It's a matter of when you can get care you need. Um, 
And, and, and I think, you know, one of the great problems is almost everywhere on earth, we are thinking about healthcare in the mid 20th century terms of it's rare, major and reactive to something that happened. We treat healthcare as it was in 1950, where you had a primary care doctor and then everything else was likely to be some kind of emergency. Um, and almost everything about uh, the way healthcare systems have been designed, it's to handle episodic care like that. And the reality is we know is that healthcare in the 21st century is something consumed constantly over your lifetime in a variety of different ways. 85% of spend this year will go on things that are considered chronic, which means the treatment lasted more than a year, in many cases, a decade, in some cases, a lifetime. And we've built a healthcare system here and everywhere on earth based more around this sort of episodic model of your house is burning down, we've got to send the fire department. It's and, so true. And it's kind of extension of that major medical happening where somebody has that emergency care and needs to go to the hospital. And that's just filtered down through every time you walk into a primary care office for a flu shot or a physical, we're treating that like your, your leg was just severed off. Yeah. You have financial support, you know, you're using your health insurance, which is a financial risk tool to prevent you from losing everything you have in case something major happens, but you're using it for these little checkups that were frankly, doesn't even cost that much money when you get down to it, if you can find a price. Well, that's, so that's the incredible irony of this. And the incredible irony of telehealth is that, you know, so my, my company, Sesame Care, is a marketplace for doctors to directly list the prices at which they'll perform any service. Telehealth is one of the services, but there's a lot of in-person services. There's a lot of diagnostics. There's the, uh, some procedures that we're launching, a lot of procedures we're launching within a couple of weeks. And so doctors can just put whatever price they want and whatever time they're available. What's interesting is on any given day, some doctors will put one or two or three appointments at $20. Some will put as low as $10. We've even had a doctor say, $5, five minutes, I got nothing to do for the next hour. They sell out instantly. What's interesting about that is that at $20, it's a haircut. Who needs reimbursement for their haircut? It's a consumer product. And what makes it a non-consumer product is adding all of the administrative collections, bureaucratic paperwork costs of third-party payment. I wrote a piece in Forbes a few weeks ago in which I looked at the biggest provider of, of telehealth and the company probably more than anyone that has pushed successfully for third-party reimbursement. So they've really accomplished something, Teladoc. So Teladoc did... Um, 4 million telehealth appointments in 2019. The average they pay doctors was $25 an appointment. Some got 30, for some specialists 35, but roughly $25, which is very close to what doctors list on Sesame directly. Pay me $25 and you can tell them. So that's $100 million payment to doctors for 4 million appointments. Teladoc's revenues were over $500 million, which means that the people paying them, which were insurers and companies, were paying the equivalent of $130 an appointment for $25 with a doctor. 25, right? And what's fascinating about it is Teladoc didn't make money doing this. It's not like Teladoc was collecting $110. That was the cost of servicing third-party payment. That's all it is. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Wow. Wow. Yeah, those, uh, so $125 for a visit and then $25 actually goes to the professional, the physician yeah. uh, who worked their entire life and dedicated, you know, their career to it gets 25 bucks for this. And then you got to scratch your head saying, where, 
in the world is the other hundred dollars going? And and where and it goes is, and beyond the hundred dollars too for, and, and, for driving and, losses. That's right. And 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 it's all about the extraordinary amount of work you have to do to get third party payers to say, we will reimburse the service or an employer to say, you can use telehealth for free. And, you know, interestingly, in the national health statistics, the entire 500 million will show up as health services, as if they're provided by a doctor, because that's what you're paying for. I'm just paying to see a doctor. But he just, you know, um, for every doctor in this country, there's 17 other people working in healthcare. And a meaningful number of them are clerks, literally just calculating what you can pay the doctors in the hospitals. And I, you can't blame the clerks and you can't blame some companies like Teladoc, which have worked very hard to innovate in a space resistant to innovation. My point is the opposite, which is that weirdly, this thing we've built to protect ourselves, third party payment. In the example of simple medical services, and Chris, to your point, many of them are now incredibly inexpensive to actually provide as a clinician, marks it up so much that we wind up needing financial help to do it. But if we didn't, (laughs) so most Americans can pay $20 for a telehealth appointment or $25. And yet getting them insurance makes that so prohibitively expensive that they need the insurance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that is the story of the American healthcare system. That's a great little synopsis because you know, when somebody's paying $20,000 a year for a healthcare premium, they're going to say, well, why should I have to pay anything else out of pocket? Exactly. Because what the hell am I paying anything else for? Right. So, and, and that's exactly what happens is, is you pay $20,000, which is an extraordinary amount of money for coverage. And you then say to yourself, wait, I got to pay another 20 bucks. I don't want to do that. But if the insurer covers that 20 bucks next year, it's 20,500 your premium. And you can't see that connection as an individual and you shouldn't be able to see it as an individual. Right. But you can see it if you work in, in healthcare. The fascinating thing of course, is that this is another one of those circumstances where what's good for uh, what's bad for the buyer isn't necessarily good for the seller. Independent practices. And I know a lot of your listeners are independent practices are collapsing under the weight of this third-party payment system. Many of the doctors who list on Sesame say they think about revenue they get from an insurer as costing them somewhere between 25 and 40 cents on the dollar. That is an extraordinary amount of cost to be able to service an insurance customer. And uh, so it's a system that, that incredibly works badly for the buyer and for the seller that is an extraordinary dysfunction and, and prevents innovation from occurring between them. It completely stagnates the market. And so you mentioned, um, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought up the article you had in Forbes and we'll go ahead and post a link to that um, on our website at healthcareamericana.com. But wanted to talk a little bit more about what you're doing and how you're innovating because I think it's a really cool idea. And this is something that a lot of direct primary care physicians are struggling out there trying to yeah. opt out of Medicare and still have some type of supplemental income coming in. Lo and behold, here's an option, um, you know, within the Sesame marketplace. So what makes your service stand out from, you know, some of the big boys of telehealth that you mentioned? Tell us a little bit about some of the differences that you're working with and, and why you're seeing success with this type of a model. 
Yeah, so Sesame's model is we're really a partner with doctors. Doctors are not behind our curtain as a cost center for us. So what that means is we're a marketplace. And doctors literally can list whatever they want to list uh, for their services at the prices they want and the availability they want. They can list dynamic pricing. If some parts of the day are really busy and some are less so, they can have different prices there. Telehealth is one of the options they could list, but obviously is a bigger part of our business now that many you know, physical practices remain closed for unlimited hours. Uh, but the, the proposition is fairly simple. But the big telehealth companies treat doctors as a contractor. You're not a name. You're not servicing your patients. You're, you know, working for them, and they will give you a, a certain number of dollars per appointment. Varies on the provider, and that's fine, right? It's, it's a decent way to earn some supplemental income. But if you want to treat your own patients or build your own practice, you can use almost any video conference technology. You can use FaceTime now that HIPAA isn't required. You can use Google Meet. You can use Zoom. You can do whatever you want. But there's no economic model attached to that. So you have to deal separately with the patient as to how you get paid. The way Sesame works is providers list what they want to get paid for a service, define the service in English. Uh, We don't use codes. There's no reimbursement. There's no codes. We tend to see meaningful discounts off of... um, not just the normal list prices, but even what insurers reimburse because it's meaningfully cheaper for a provider to provide a service on Sesame. And the patient pays up front. And this is the biggest thing. The patient buys the service like you do in any online marketplace. It really is almost identical to what we see online in every other industry on earth except for healthcare. It's, it's the most radical thing in healthcare and the most normal thing in anyone else, right? Nobody, nobody would expect to go to Amazon and buy a book and, you know, pay when the UPS guy showed up with the book. So you just pay up front and you've locked in the price. And in return for which, because collection costs have been such a big issue for independent practices, there are no collection costs. And it means that they can offer just terrific prices to cash pay customers. And so cash pay customers who have been, sort of the least desirable customer in the healthcare business because you don't know that you're going to collect and they don't have an insurance card and you you don't know about continuity of care, become a much easier customer, much easier patient to treat and therefore encourages you to offer your best possible price. Yeah, you strip out a bunch of the waste and say, look, instead of this money, this dollar, hitting six different people, six different companies, six different administrators, bureaucrats, clerks, whatever it is, when we exchange it, that's a heck of a cost saving right there because nobody else's hands are in the pie. Yeah. And I, I don't, it, 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 you're absolutely right. I, I don't want to though overemphasize the economic point. The economics matter, but as we all know, doctors don't just go into healthcare to be business people. In fact, relatively few of them are business people. We, we call what we do direct to patient care because there's a certain, there's a certain, uh, reality to the way you can perform care when you're not being reimbursed that feels more direct, more hands-on. You have more time with the patient. You can focus more on when you're thinking less about codes and checking boxes. And it's a certain type of physician that wants to do that. You mentioned the, the DPC physicians. When we beta launched uh, uh, Sesame in Kansas City, we had a number of DPC physicians who were our partners in figuring this out. Uh, They wanted to use it to find, in some cases, some additional DPC patients, but they also were willing to do some um, care uh, apart from the DPC model on a kind of urgent care basis to fill up some of their time um, and and to use their skills. 
And it's a completely different therapeutic mentality, not just an economic mentality. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it goes back to, I kind of mentioned this in the beginning of the, the episode here in my mind, the concept of reimbursement for medical services versus somebody paying up front. It takes a lot of the kind of psychological warfare out of it uh, within medicine. And again, not focusing on the economics of it, but you talk to physicians and they're always like, you know, I, I need to provide something that's in the best interest of this patient. How much pushback am I going to get from the insurance company who says, oh, I need some pre-authorizations or it's the wrong code or how much time and am I going to have to waste trying to get the best care for this patient? And along with that care comes the economic aspect of it versus here's the price. Okay. This person paid it. I can now, I am now free professionally and economically to act in the best interest of this patient. Yeah. We really see that. It's a very good point. Yeah. And, and it's, again, I go back and chuckling. It's like, I can't believe we're having this conversation here in the year 2020, right? It's, uh, it's unbelievable. So, you know, as we, as we start to kind of wrap up this discussion here, I always love discussing, you know, the favorite subject of mine with competition in the market. And we've touched upon this multiple times. How do traditional third-party payers that use kind of a telehealth or virtual care system and most people have high deductible plans, commercial insurance plans. How do, well, let me rephrase that. How does somebody with insurance using like a teledoc type of platform, how does that restrict the purchasing power of really the most powerful economic force in the world, the American consumer? How does that? Yeah. yeah, So, so I, I, this is, I mean, this is, you, you hit on a pet subject of mine as well. We accidentally in this country, have settled on a high deductible insurance plan as a way for consumers to have skin in the game and provider staff to sell to them. That's the theory. And it was a theory that politicians didn't buy, but some of the economic implications of the Affordable Care Act move most private insurance to high deductible. By the way, Medicare increasingly is a high deductible plan for a lot of people compared to what deductibles were Great point. Uh, 10 years ago. Deductibles exist almost everywhere in the economy. And that should have been a great thing. Right. If the first thousand, twenty five hundred, five thousand dollars out of your own pocket, you're careful with it. And then incredibly, we made it impossible for consumers to make choices. So nobody has explained to me why an insurance company insists that your money spent on your care must follow the same network and out of network rules as their money. (laughs) What is their fear? that you are spending way too much of your own money and getting to your deductible too fast. That's their fear. So this has utterly destroyed the purpose of high deductible plans. We now have the worst of both worlds. We have high deductibles, which expose Americans to a lot of cost and no ability for that exposure to in any way have any economic impact because you got to stay in network, which means there's no competition. Telehealth as it has developed, and I'm, I hope I'm not being sort of too sort of wonky on this here, has no, fit in exactly with that. Each insurer has their preferred telehealth partner. You use their telehealth partner, you may have, it, it may fit in, uh, it may have a small copay, or it may be, right now a lot of it is free, it won't be long term. But it qualifies against your deductible. What is the argument for doing that? So what I've done now is I've said, good news, I'm going to cut costs down by doing a monopoly deal with a provider. Insane. And it, is, it tells you 
I, you know, I've had this conversation with endless numbers of policymakers. Um, they somehow believe that an insurer who gets paid 15% of the amount you spend on healthcare will be incented to reduce the amount you spend on healthcare. They're not. And the way they've managed deductible spend, including telehealth as it relates to deductible spend, is part of that. Now, here's the kicker. In any given year in the private insurance market, somewhere between 10 and 15%, maybe as high as 17, 18% of covered families break their deductible. And for many of those families, it's the same family every year because there's some long-term chronic condition that requires a lot of care. On a, on a surprise basis, it's a single digit percentage point of American families who break through their deductible every year. One of the reasons that Sesame has been successful among consumers is consumers are starting to figure this out. And they're saying, why on earth, since I am never going to break through a $5,000 deductible unless something, or $10,000 deductible, unless something awful happens, in which case I'm breaking through it by an enormous amount, um, am I using my insurer to buy my health care? It's 2X. Mm-hmm. You know, you get an insurance discount on an MRI, it's $1,000 or $900 or $1,100. That's coming out of your pocket because you haven't hit the deductible yet. You go on Sesame on any given day, there's a, there's a radiology clinic that's offering that MRI at 375 or 425 or 450. That difference literally is the cost of third-party payment. And from a policy perspective, letting insurers say, yeah, you, your deductible spend is a network is the most anti-competitive price inflating thing they could have done in the era of high deductible plans. Yeah, I'm sitting here shaking my head. I know that you know, we don't have any video published on these podcasts, but I'm just sitting here nodding saying, yep, yep, yep. It is, uh, I don't know if they did such a great job marketing that, but again, it goes back to that double speak. It's, it's what they say with the words that they use. It's the complete opposite of what is actually in reality. And like you yeah. said, when, when my company or if I'm an insurer and I'm mandated to only earn a certain percentage of profit from my revenues, well, the only way I can make more money, driving up premiums. That's it. I make more profit by making more revenues, and that is the simplest thing in the world. There, there are very few business incentives in our healthcare system that don't cause the price of care to go up for Americans. And unfortunately, our response has been, oh, then we need more of this, not yep. we need less of it. Yep. And so we're, we're in this vicious circle right now where third-party payment massively pushes up the cost of care. Because the cost of care is pushed up, we say, we need more third-party payment. And it's been, it's been 50 years of this, and we've gotten almost 19% of GDP as a result of it. And at some point, we got to stop. So Sesame is a small effort to stop. It's to go and, and talk to patients who are price sensitive and understand that they're not their insurance policy is there for catastrophic care. And even though they paid, you know, $20,000 or 25,000 for it, getting their normal healthcare through it is, it just adds to their expense, doesn't subtract. And doctors who are looking for business models away from third-party payment. One of the things narrow networks have done is it means relying on insurers as a source of new patients has gotten more limited at the same time that the cost of accepting third-party payment has gone up. It's been terrible for lots of doctors' practices and DPC and other doctors have looked for a new business models and new revenue models. Um, and as I said before, it's one of those incredible things where it's both good for the buyer and seller. You see a very few of those in the American economy. Healthcare is full of them. Truer words never spoken. 
David Goldhill, CEO and founder of Sesame. Thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. It's amazing uh, what you guys are doing to change the world with your direct-to-patient marketplace. Thanks so much, Chris. Great talking to you today. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.